Thank you, Ron, and thank the Lord for that marvelous, inspiring message and song. Beautiful. Impressive, isn't it? Impressive. Dan Neal's testimony. Impressive. Ron's song. Impressive. This past week, I got to thinking about impressions. Ron is in the advertising business uh, with Mrs. Cockrell and others. That's, a, that's an advertising word, isn't it? Impressions. That's what they talk about. Impressions that are varied in uh, intensity, varied in uh, the number of people that are affected by them. I got to thinking about that in relation to our church. Driving back from town, and I was on my way back here for a staff meeting last Tuesday, and we got in staff meeting, and I started sharing this idea. And so we got out pencil and paper and tried to calculate the impressions made by the ministries of this church in a one-week period. Now, when I talk about impressions, a couple of things I'm not talking about. I'm not, not talking about the incalculable impressions that you make individually in your daily life, in school, in work, in the community, in military, wherever you are. I'm not talking about the impressions that you as followers of Christ and members of this church make in the life of this community. That is, as I say, incalculable. Nor are we talking about the impressions made outside of San Antonio by this church. We're not talking about the impressions made because of our involvement in our denomination, hospitals, orphanages, schools, educational institutions. Nor are we talking about television outside of San Antonio, that which is on cable news network and headline news network. Nor are we talking about the tape ministry, 2,000 a week sent all over the world. 1,500 of those go outside of the city of San Antonio to prisons, to missionaries, to foreign countries, to all kinds of places and people. We're not talking about that. Those are not the impressions we're talking about. We wanted to try to get a, a, a number in our mind, and, and we really worked at being conservative. We really scaled it down rather than scaling it up to try to determine the impressions made by this church in a week. Now, when we talk about impressions, we're talking about the fact that one person may be impressed 12 times during a week, another person one. We're talking about the total number of impressions. Often, the number of impressions of the love of Christ and the message of Christ to you depends upon how often you are here. You may get one 30-second impression on television. You may get an hour-long impression in Bible study on Sunday morning. So the degree, the intensity, the number of impressions varied. We're talking about the total number of individual impacts, seeds, impressions made for Christ just through the ministries of this church in one week. Give you a guess. A conservative estimate. 1,314,578 impressions. One million of those, television. The Nielsen ratings, a very accurate description of the ratings, say that the spots in San Antonio alone are seen 1.3 million times in a week. We dropped off 300,000. That's what we did with just about every number here. Drop off a million and you have 314,578. We're not going to drop that million because those are being impressed with the gospel and with the word of Christ. 
But what all is involved in this? Worship, Bible study on Sunday morning, Wednesday evening activities, seven days a week, um, seven days a week ministry at the Rubel Center, Mother's Day Out, counseling ministries, youth ministries, weekday and night Bible study ministries, music ministries, Alpha Home, our home for women alcoholics, visitation to the hospitals, the Tate ministry that is here in San Antonio and seen and heard rather by people here in San Antonio, visits to ministries to retirement homes, our Hispanic mission, our athletic program, you begin adding up all of those in one week, you have 1,314,578 individual impressions for Christ and His love and His word and His message made in this city because of what you do and we do collectively in the life of this fellowship. Our budget for one week is $59,615. That means that each one of these impressions is about four and a half cents a piece. Four and a half cents a piece. Now it may vary as it does in my ministry and it does as it does in the ministry of everybody on this staff. This past week I did some 30 second spots. It took a lot more than 30 seconds to do them, but they were the impression was for 30 seconds. One day this past week, I also spent three hours with a dear grieving family. The impression may be RAs with one young man, GAs with one young girl. It may be Bible study on Sunday morning. It may be hours and hours counseling through our counseling ministry at the level of home life, family life, career changes. Somebody said, you know, you can't get anything nowadays for a nickel but five pennies. No, I'll tell you what you can get for a nickel. You can help make an impression for Christ. That's why I urge you to have your children bring their offerings. To help them see the impact that that nickel, that dime, that quarter, that dollar, that hundred dollars, that five, ten, twenty thousand, whatever it might be. How many impressions are made for Christ because of your gifts? Uh, we're not giving at that rate right now, that 59000 a week. So we'll be making fewer impressions. I hope you'll bring your nickels and your multiples of nickels for the cause of Christ in this place. Now, I want to say a word very quickly. I'm not saying, I don't want any visitor here to think I'm talking to you. I'm not talking. I don't want you giving to Trinity Baptist Church. If you're a member of some other church here in this community and you are involved there and you're visiting or working there and serving there and worshiping there, that's where you need to give your money. I'm talking to our folks, Trinity people. We're the ones responsible for the impressions we're to make for Christ in our day and in our world. Jesus impressed a lot of people. A group of men, ten of them, who are in serious trouble. You'll read about them, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to look to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I'll read it to you in a moment. I want to tell you about it quickly. They were lepers. Ten lepers. It's hard for us in our day to imagine what it was like to be a leper. 
It was the most repulsive and the most, most loathsome, despicable disease. The closest equivalent we could find in our day would be the attitude toward AIDS. Leprosy was horrible. The people who were lepers were separated from the rest of society. They were allowed no social contact except with other lepers. They could not live at home. When they walked through the streets, they had to hold their hand up to their mouth so as not to inadvertently even breathe on someone else. And as they walked through the streets, they had to cry aloud, unclean, 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 so the crowds could scatter to avoid any possible contamination. It is impossible for us in our day to comprehend the attitude in Jesus' day toward lepers. And here were ten lepers, and they were always together because they couldn't be with anybody else, and they were standing at a distance, and they were crying out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. They needed mercy desperately. I want to read you a very quick word about lepers. If, if you have not read Dr. Paul Brand's book on Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and other books about him, this marvelous doctor who was raised on the mission field in India, his father a medical missionary, where he developed a great love for Christ and a great love for others. He later became the chief of rehabilitation branch of the U.S. Public Health Service in Carver, Louisiana, working with lepers. He's an outstanding orthopedic surgeon, professor at Louisiana State University Medical School, world-renowned. This is a marvelous book fearfully and wonderfully made. And he's telling about something of his testimony, how he first saw and met a leper when he was seven years of age when they came to the clinic where his father was working in India. And this is what he says, I studied leprosy patients in India. Several findings pushed me toward a rather simple theory. Could it be that that horrible disease results from the fact that leprosy patients, get this, have lost the sense of feeling? The inability to feel pain or pleasure. The disease was not at all like a flesh-devouring fungus. Rather, it attacked mainly a single type of cell, the nerve cell. After years of testing and observation, I felt sure that the theory was sound. The gradual, listen, listen to that, gradual loss, it's not instantaneous, catastrophic, it's gradual. The gradual loss of the sense of feeling leads to misuse of those body parts most dependent upon feeling and upon the protection of pain. A, pers a person uses a hammer with a splintery handle. He does not feel the pain and an infection flares up. Another steps off a curb, spraining an ankle or breaking an ankle. And oblivious keeps walking on the injured ankle. Another loses use of the nerve that triggers the eyelid to blink every few seconds for lubricating, for lubricating moisture. The eye dries out and the person becomes blind. The millions of cells in a hand or foot or the living and alert rod and cone cells in the eye can be rendered useless because, get this, of the breakdown of a few nerve cells. Such is the tragedy of leprosy. The loss 
of feeling. Fortunately, these men had enough feeling left to recognize that they needed help, and they cried out for it. Jesus, pity us. Have mercy on us. I don't know whether anybody in this room today or not feels like Everybody here has got it made, except you. I know that feeling. To look around a great crowd of people that outwardly seem to be doing well and seem to be happy, and you think, man, everybody there has got it made but me. Everyone there is healthy, wealthy, and wise but myself. And I'm not in a good place. They're in a good place. I don't feel good about myself. They seem to feel good about themselves. They seem to have it all together. <laughs> I hadn't even started getting it together. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but on many occasions I could have raised my hand. My friend, I don't care how far outside you may be, how far distant you may think you are, like these lepers which become an extreme example of a truth that is applicable in varying degrees in our culture every day. There are a lot of people who are standing way off to the side saying, I don't deserve to be up there close. Something about society or the way I feel about myself or what others say about me keeps me from getting close. But, oh, Lord, I need help. God, you know how much I need help. Help me, help me, help me. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon me, he said, and I will answer you. He'll never turn down that cry. He'll never turn down that plea. I don't care how far out of it you may think you are or how down on yourself you might be. Jesus Christ will hear you and he will help you and he will give you his love and his grace and his peace. You just ask him. Ask and you shall receive. These ten lepers ask. Jesus, help me. His answer is phenomenal. He said, go to the high priest and show yourself to him. The high priest in Jesus' day was the equivalent of the public health officer as well as an official of the, of the, of the uh, temple and of the synagogue. So there they were. They started. They started doing what Jesus told them to do. Notice something. They didn't stand there and pray, nor did they stand there and talk. They moved. What Jesus was trying to say to us is something that he says many times in both word and in deeds throughout the New Testament, and it is this, faith is a verb, it is not a noun. Don't just stand there and believe, start moving. Go toward the priest. He did the same thing with the blind man. Go to the pool of Siloam, and as you go and wash, you will be made whole. Do it. Faith is an active verb. Start moving. And these ten men started moving toward the priest and they were healed as they had faith. The word faith itself is a verb. It's not a noun. It doesn't even translate uh, easily into the English language because it is a verb. Jesus is telling us to face him. It's an active verb. Not just stand there and academically and objectively and analytically say, I believe intellectually. Do it. Go, he said, and as you go, you're healed. As they went, they were healed. They were cleansed. Those two words are used interchangeably. He said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
My dear friend here today, let me say it again. If you feel like an outsider, the Lord hears you. And the ministries of this church want to hear you. We're doing all we can to keep our ear to the ground of human need. And with the help of God, try to meet that need. So act. Do something about it. Start. And like these ten men, something will happen in your life. Something happened in their lives. They were cleansed. Jesus answered them. Try to imagine walking along with those ten fellows. Walking along, they started looking at themselves, and, and their skin began to change. It began to take on the normal color. They began to look at each other, and some of those old wounds that were incurred because of the loss of feeling and the inability to feel pain, some of their eyesight began to return. They got there to the priest, and the priest looked at him and said, You're well, you're cleansed, you're healed. My goodness, how exhilarating that would be, how excited they were. You would think that they couldn't have gotten back to Jesus fast enough to thank him for what they had received from him as a free gift. But what happened? It's amazing. And yet not so amazing. Nine of them left. Nine of them left. Only one, and he, it's a Samaritan, the Scripture said. Now, if you were a Samaritan, that's a, that's a loathsome disease as far as the Jews were concerned. I mean, if you are a Samaritan leper, I mean, you have had a double whammy laid on you. You're a two-time loser. You, you've double jeoparded your life. If you are a Samaritan, that's bad enough to be called a half-breed dog by the religious crowd of the day. And nobody would even speak to you or even walk through your country. But if you were a Samaritan and on top of that, you were a leper, you were really out of it. The only person who came back to give thanks was the Samaritan. And Jesus said, Weren't there ten? Where are the nine? Where are they? I, I've tried to imagine in my mind why, they, why those nine didn't come back. I'm sure you could add reasons. I, I can only use my imagination. I imagine some of them thought, well, we deserve this. I mean, after all, we deserve to be healthy like everybody else. All he was doing was just getting us back to where we should have been in the first place. We didn't deserve to have leprosy, and we didn't deserve to be treated that way, and it was really everybody else's fault in the first place, and so all we've got is our just desserts, so we don't need to be grateful to him for that. This is expected. We're supposed to prosper. We're supposed to be happy. That's the norm, and we don't have the norm, so now we're back to the starting line like everybody else, so we just got what we deserve. So we don't need to thank him for what he's supposed to be doing anyway. Maybe some said, uh, boy, next time I run into him at church, I'm going to thank him. Or one of these days, I'm going to write him a thank you note and say, boy, you really helped me. Thank you, Jesus. 
But, but my goodness, I've got other things I've got to do now. And, and I know I'll bump into him somewhere. And as soon as I see him, I'm going to say, boy, thank you a lot. Maybe it'll be homecoming at Nazareth High School or something like that. I'll run into him. And I'll say, Jesus, you really helped me. And I want, to, I want to thank you for all the help you gave to me. I'm going to do it. I'm just not going to do it now. I'm going to do it when it's convenient. I'm going to do it when it's appropriate. I'm going to do it when I am able to do it at my own time. So they didn't go back. Well, they were cleansed, weren't they? Yep, they were. They were healed, weren't they? Yep. What did they miss? Let's see if they missed something. I want you to listen to the words that Jesus uses, and I want to point them out, and I hope you'll pay real close attention for a moment. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Underline that word. One of them, when he saw he was healed, put that right there beside cleansed, cleansed and healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this outsider? This foreigner? Then he said to him, the one leper that came back, the Samaritan leper, he said to him, rise and go, get this, your faith has made you well. You can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you can be healed in your spirit by the magnificent grace of God and not be well. You can still have leprosy of the spirit if you don't give thanks. You'll bottle it up, you will slowly, progressively, like the leper over a period of time, have the cells of gratitude die, and you'll never get well. Oh, you'll get to heaven, you're cleansed, you're saved, you die, you go to be with the Lord, but you never get well. That's a contemporary phrase, isn't it? Some people who got on the stock market when it was going up, got well. Somebody who birded 18, got well. Somebody hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, the team got well. That phrase applies, doesn't it? Surely it does. My friend, you can pray, you can be cleansed, you can call upon Jesus and still not be well in your spirit. I remember as a child learning a little poem that I imagine many of you learned also. There are two little magic words that can open any door with ease. One little word is thanks. And the other little word is please. All of us ask, please. Lord, help me. Please, Lord, forgive me. Have you said thanks? You remember Shakespeare's words? How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. I wonder what that does to God, our heavenly parent. 
The Earl of Rochester lived a long time and he made a lot of money. He was a very famous man. He came to the end of his life and he made this statement. Would to God I'd been born a blind beggar or a foul leper than to have lived and forgotten God. The tragedy of ingratitude. Do you know who it hurts? Us. It keeps us getting well. You say, well, Bugner, I don't, uh, you know, I don't feel some sort of legalistic requirement to do that. Uh, forget legalism. My, I, I don't know. If there's one word I want to get across to you in the years that I'm your pastor and pray that it will be so, plowed so deep into the life of this fellowship that 50 years from now when an altogether different group of people are in this room, they'll still be hearing new ideas and new insights and new comprehensions about the grace of God, the fathomless, amazing, marvelous grace of God. Listen, my friend, the ethic of the New Testament, the message of the New Testament begins with grace. It is not guilt that is the primary message of the New Testament. It is grace, not guilt. It is grace, grace, grace. Look at it throughout the New Testament. We are loved. And because we are loved, we love. We are loved before we are asked to love. We receive before we're asked to give. We're forgiven before we're asked to forgive. We're called before we're asked to go. Listen, we know the power of the resurrection before we're ever called to carry the cross. We know we've already won. That's why Paul said in the third chapter of Philippians that I know Him, listen to this, I know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. The kind of suffering is not masochism. It is not terrible punishment. It is the suffering of enjoying a great game the intense pressure, which is what that word really means, the ex exceeding excitement of the game we enjoy because we can look at the scoreboard and know we've already won. So we're called to carry the cross predicated upon the promise of an experienced resurrection already in Jesus Christ. It is grace first. And that must be our message. That is our message. And that's the reason we give is because we have received. The reason we love is because we've been loved. The reason we go is because we've been called. Say, so, well, Bugner, I doubt if that applies to many people in this room. I guess all of us maybe agree with you. Maybe so, maybe not. Only you can really answer that question. Sometimes the Lord's help comes from the most unlikely and unexpected sources. You know we've been praying a lot about our budget needs toward the end of this year. And praying about our church budget for next year, about all those impressions that we want to make for Christ in our community and in our world. And we were really, really concerned, and stewardship committee and others, leadership of our church, myself, our staff, we're concerned about it. We see it very up close and personal. We know what it means if those impressions are not able to be made and those ministries performed. Sometimes the things happen that just God just uses as a marvelous inspiration and encouragement. Sometimes it comes from an outsider. 
must have encouraged Jesus that this Samaritan did come back. One came back. He said, well, that's not a very good percentage. No, it isn't. One out of ten. Eighteen percent of this church gives 80% of the church's budget. I don't know who the 18 are, as I told you a while ago. I don't know what any of you give. We can analyze who gives without ever looking at a name. And the figures come to us. 18% of the membership of this church give 80% of this church's budget. I think we have some folks who are not saying thank you. But thank you sometimes come from unexpected places and people. When I read this note to Dan McClendon this past week and shared with him this, what's here and what I want to share with you, Dan began to cry. We just stood there and talked. Dan said, Mildred and I have been praying every morning that God would give us something to just give us encouragement about the ministries of this church. A couple of years ago, I preached in a revival meeting on the east coast of the United States and met a couple very fine couple, active in their church. They're Baptists, and they tithe to their church. They do more than that, far more than that. They're extremely active in their church. They started getting our tapes, and they flew over here to be in our church. They just have fallen in love with Trinity. They live a couple of thousand miles away. I was over in Atlanta recently, and they flew up and spent the weekend. They get the tapes. They see the spots on cable news network and headline news network. And so this past week, I got a letter from them. Not a very formal letter. It's the bottom half of a yellow legal sheet of paper, and he wrote on there in his handwriting this word. Dear Buckner and Martha, Buckner, it was really nice to visit with you and attend the services in Atlanta. Buckner, the check enclosed is to be used at Trinity to further any ministry. Praise God for his generous blessings. Thanks to Steve for the tapes and for the TV, both exciting and uplifting. Best of everything to all the Fannings, warmest regards, and he signed his name, and he enclosed there a check for $10,000. That's right, that's whistling time, $10,000. <laughs> You say, man, alive, Buckner. If I had $10,000, I'd give it too. Maybe that's why he has it. Maybe he's a giver. He didn't get to come here. You know one of the problems of ingratitude is we start taking things for granted. I don't believe familiarity breeds contempt, but I do believe it breeds indifference. That can happen in your family, in your marriage. It can happen in your relationship to the Lord. I don't know what the Lord wants you to give. It may be $10,000. It may be a nickel. All I want you to do and all I want to ask of myself is to say, Lord, help me to say thank you in a way that will adequately and appropriately express to you my eternal love.
and my gratitude. He may give me more money. He may not. But he'll make me well in my spirit, in my attitude, in my heart, and in my relationship. John A. Broadus was one of the great preachers of American history. Lived in the last century, born in 1827. Brilliant man, teacher of Greek, New Testament theology. First president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Preached to the troops in the Confederate Army. A great man, great mind, great spirit. One of the marvelous leaders of Baptist life in the former century. Came a little town in Virginia, and in that town was a boy who was retarded. Small town. And this little boy was lovable and likable, but he was not as healthy as most people. He was more retarded than most folks. All of us are to a degree. This little boy had troubles. And everybody was friendly to him, talked to him, spoke to him. And John A. Broadus, and he were contemporaries, and as John A. Broadus got older and became a Christian, went off to school and came back, he'd see his friend, and they'd speak. And then one day, John A. Broadus wondered whether or not anybody had ever talked to that boy about accepting Christ. Everybody knew he was a good kid and likable, and that all of the, he didn't have all of the mental capacities that most people had. So this just kind of took him for granted at that point. But John A. Broadus didn't. And he told him about the Lord. And the boy accepted Christ as his Savior. He never was able to go off to school. He stayed there in the community, did odd jobs, got older as John A. Broadus did. But Dr. Broadus would say that whenever he would come back to the family home to visit loved ones or on a holiday, most of the time he'd see this boy, small enough town that you didn't have to go out of your way to run into everybody, just go to town. And he said whenever he would see the boy, now the young man, he would say to John A. Broadus, Howdy, John. Thank you, John. Year after year as they went on, growing older, year after year whenever they would meet, Howdy, John. Thank you, John. The retarded boy, now young man, now older man died. John A. Broadus went back to conduct his funeral. And he said, Someday I will meet him again. Not in our little town, but on the golden streets. And I know what he will say. Howdy, John. Thank you, John. You're going to meet your Lord someday. Howdy, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And for me, and for my house, and I hope for you and yours, we're going to start saying thank you right now. Thank you, Jesus. Howdy. Help, save, you did it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Go out of your way to do it. It'll make you well. It'll make you well.
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Lord, you loved us and love us. And now we love you back. You've blessed us. And now we bless and praise you. You've given to us. We now give to you. You have forgiven us. We now forgive ourselves and others. We thank you. And we pray, Father, for any in this service who would translate that thanks into a public decision, accepting you, rededicating life to you, becoming a part of this church and its fellowship. May the thank you get translated into the shoe leather and the checkbooks and the phone calls and the impressions of everyday living. We ask for Jesus' sake, amen. Just as I am, I come. Will you do it? Don't anyone move or leave, please. There's such a great crowd here. Any unnecessary movement can be very distracting. So from upstairs or down, wherever, let me meet you here. Come do what Christ is impressing you to do in these next few brief but very important moments. Let's stand and let's sing.